Opioid use disorders are common and physicians of all specialties are likely to find themselves caring for patients with this chronic condition. An acute hospital admission is one particular opportunity to intervene that remains underused by physicians. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Joseph Dunro, Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Dunro co-authored a recently published review article on the management of patients with opioid use disorders during acute hospital admission. I reached Dr. Dunro in New Haven. Good morning, Dr. Dunro. Good morning. First off, tell us about opioid use disorder as a chronic condition in the inpatient and the outpatient setting. Yeah, well, I think there's there's two parts to this question. One is opiate use disorder is a chronic condition, and the other is, you know, what, what about opiate use disorder in the inpatient outpatient settings? Um, to address the the first one, opiate use disorder is a pattern of compulsive opioid use despite harmful consequences in its most simplest form of this of the definition. But there's been this real sort of misperception about where the disorder comes from and what's the etiology, both in sort of the lay press and the public and amongst many doctors. And, and there's this belief that this is a moral, a behavioral problem, a character flaw. And this influences how we interact with our, our patients. Um, you know, I think as physicians, we, we constantly strive for the evidence. And we know there's many years of research that supports addiction as a real chronic brain disease. And like other chronic conditions, it leads to real biologic changes and is influenced by complex interactions of genetics and environmental factors. Um, and we should treat it as such. You know, in the inpatient outpatient setting, it's, it's common uh, and it's often unrecognized. And it includes a spectrum of illicit opioid use like heroin uh, and prescription opioid use like Percocet, oxycodone. We certainly see a lot of it in primary care and general medicine, which is what I do, but it's, it's, uh, it's well represented in other specialties as well. When a person is hospitalized, somebody who has opiate use disorder, how can physicians identify patients who use opioids on a chronic basis and how can they anticipate any problems? Yeah, it's an important question. And it's um, no real straightforward answer to this one. It's a common problem, so we should be vigilant for it. And there's no specific profile, um, right? It could be a businessman. It could be a mother. It could be a teacher. It could be a homeless person. It could be an adolescent. Um, and so it's important not to sort of have a specific profile in mind um, uh, as we're interacting with our patients. In the inpatient setting, we tend to see... Uh, two populations. You know, one is the patient with opiate use disorder that already carries the the diagnosis. It's it's known. It's it's out there and open. The second is you know the patient who doesn't necessarily have that diagnosis, but uh, but the clinician taking care of the patient or the team taking care of the patient becomes concerned because of certain red flag behaviors. You know, these might be. Um, a pattern of hospitalizations for pain without an evident source of that pain, a pattern of seeking opioid medications from several different providers in the outpatient setting, uh, perhaps an inflexibility about the pain management plan that's put forth by the, the care team. I think it's really um, important to, to emphasize that um, 
it's not always clear cut and there's some tools that can be really helpful in, in identifying opiate use disorder. One is reviewing prescription monitoring programs if they're available to get a sense of how the patient's been using opioids in the outpatient setting. And then the second would be speaking to uh, a primary care physician uh, about the patient, uh, someone who knows the patient in a more longitudinal setting who may be able to help uh, offer some helpful insights. And I guess these things are necessary because patients don't always self-identify. Yeah, that, that's correct. They, they often, often don't. And I think that harkens back to one of the points I was making initially, you know, why don't patients self-identify? Well, there's a lot of stigma around um, addiction and opioid, uh, opioid use disorder. Uh, and there's been, and oftentimes patients will have had difficult interactions with the medical community in the past as well. And so there's a lot of incentive for them to not uh, not self-identify as well. So Now, in the inpatient setting, assuming perhaps that you don't identify a patient as being um, chronically addicted to opiate medication, how quickly would a person go into withdrawal from opioids if they're not receiving them in hospital? You know, it really depends on, on the opioid medication that they've been chronically taking. So if the patient is using short-acting opioids, such as uh, heroin or oxycodone, uh, you can expect withdrawal symptoms to begin within you know, 6 to 12 hours after having taken that last dose. With longer-acting opioids, such as methadone, for example, you might not see uh, withdrawal start for 24 or 48 hours. Um, those situations tend to be difficult because we don't often anticipate withdrawal happening that late, but, uh, but it certainly will if patients are taking long-acting medications. And what sort of symptoms would we be looking for? Yeah, the, the type of symptoms that, that patients will, will report, there's a, there's a spectrum, nonspecific pain, myalgia, uh, you'll see things like tachycardia, diaphoresis, pyloerection. Um, you can see things like uh, diarrhea, nausea, um, an inability to sit still, yawning, uh, dilated pupils. All of these things go with a, a, a picture of opioid withdrawal. You know, one of the things that I, I, I often do um, when I'm talking to patients about their withdrawals, I'll ask them what what their withdrawal has looked like in the past. Uh, and so I, of course, I know going into the interaction that, that opiate use disorder is on the table, but they'll, they'll very detailed, uh, in a detailed way, describe to me what their withdrawal looks like so we can be attuned to it. And what's the best approach to managing withdrawal? Obviously, it begins with recognition. I think if we're not attuned to the fact that withdrawal uh, may be happening, we're going to miss some important opportunities. So, you know, one, detecting withdrawal is going to, it's really going to allow you to, to treat the underlying uh, reason for hospitalization a little bit more easily. For example, that patient who came in with community-acquired pneumonia, if we're managing their withdrawal, we're going to be able to treat their pneumonia uh, easier. It's also going to help alleviate some of those frustrating interactions that we've all experienced in the inpatient setting and outpatient setting with, um, you know, both patients experience and, and we experience. Um, once you say, I'm going to help you with your withdrawal, 
you develop a partnership with your with your patient um, that will change the rest of your interactions for that hospitalization in a very positive way. And then finally, if we if we identify that withdrawal is happening, it gives us a chance to, to begin the conversation about really long-term treatment for the underlying opioid use disorder. So yeah, I think the best way to manage withdrawal, coming back to the original question, it begins with a conversation, um, and, you know, talking to, their, to your patient about what their withdrawal looks like and what their expectations uh, are, reassuring your patient that you will treat their withdrawal, and uh, again, seeing that doctor-patient uh, relationship all of a sudden uh, really change in a real positive way. I like to ask my patients specifically, are there any other substances that they might be withdrawing from, uh, in particular alcohol or benzodiazepines, mm -hmm. which could be life-threatening if that, that goes unrecognized? And then, you know, finding out about the patient's preference uh, for managing the withdrawal, because there's, there's three options. Um, no, the, the best options for medical management are methadone and buprenorphine, and those have been shown in studies to be equally effective in managing withdrawal symptoms and craving. The, um, the third option is an alpha agonist medication, such as clonidine, um, which is helpful in managing the symptoms, the, the hyperarousal, but it doesn't help with craving, and it um, and it may not help with that next step of engaging patients in the in the conversation about long term treatment. There's a fourth option that that a lot of providers, you know, when I talk to to groups of doctors in the hospital, tell me is that, you know, just don't treat it at all. It's not a life threatening condition. Uh, doesn't need to get treated. I personally, I think this is poor patient care. It, it kind of harkens back to that punitive model about this is a moral. Uh, decision on the patient's part, which is which is erroneous, and it does it. It may not be life threatening, but it does lead to poor outcomes, um, uh, namely leaving the hospital before the that pneumonia or the abscess has been treated. Um, so, it, you know, I think we definitely need to treat it. And those three options: the methadone, buprenorphine, or an alpha agonist, are reasonable choices. I'm curious about whether patients are anxious about coming into hospital because of previous bad experiences of withdrawal. Do you come across patients who have huge anxiety about withdrawal in hospital? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the biggest drivers that I've seen for patients leaving the hospital before uh, their whatever other medical problem they came in with got, got fully treated. Um, patients will tell me after I've you know, begun to manage their withdrawal, you know, thank you, this is the first time this has happened. And then, uh, and then all of a sudden, their interactions with nurses and other physicians uh, really kind of smooths out. Um, it's a real concern. Withdrawal is an uncomfortable process that, uh, that patients really want to, to avoid. Uh, and it definitely influences their interactions with us and, and then our interactions with them. Now, you were talking about pneumonia and abscess, but often patients with this condition will come into hospital with some kind of acute pain um, or an injury. And what's the best way to treat and manage this pain, given that patients already have an evolved relationship with pain medication? Yeah, it's an important question to ask. When I talk to you know our doctors here about, about managing acute pain in these scenarios, um, I remember saying it's, you know, 
we need to apply the same principles to begin with as we would apply to anyone coming in with uh, with acute pain. Um, you know, it's pain. If it's there, it should be treated. Um, and we need to start by doing a good history and physical exam to identify the source of the pain. Uh, and we need to think about using non-opioid medications um, and other physical means of managing pain when we can. Um, patients with opioid use disorder will, will have analgesic effect from Tylenol and ibuprofen, uh, from immobilization and nerve blocks, and we should use those as we would in any other, uh, other patient. But there are those patients that are going to have moderate to severe pain where opioid medications may be needed. And again, just like I do with my patients who don't have opioid use disorder, I start by discussing their expectations and my expectations for the management of their pain. I put it on the table so that there's not that sense of unknown. And my, is my pain going to get managed? I really encourage transitioning from IV to oral pain medications as quickly as possible. Oral pain medications are effective. Um, they're longer lasting than IV medications and they're less reinforcing. Um, there needs to be a constant reassessment of, of pain and we should um, stop opioids at the appropriate time. And, and in particular, when we're discharging patients, you know, really, you know, if a patient we think needs opioid medications upon discharge, yeah, prescription for 48 to 72 hours at, at most, and then a reassessment. Um, you know, no more of this being discharged with a month's worth of opioid medications. This is, this is part of where the problem uh, of the epidemic that we're seeing with uh, opioid use disorders is, is stemming from. But for patients who do have a diagnosis of opiate use disorder, I think there's a few more things that we need to uh, consider. You know, one is that we're, you know, we're going to have to manage not just pain, but pain and withdrawal, because um, if a patient begins to go into withdrawal, whatever pain they're experiencing is going to feel that much worse. Um, and so we need to, to manage both of those things. And so there we have a few options. So, you know, one is uh, for patients that are, aren't already engaged in, in care, they're not on methadone, they're not on buprenorphine, we can think about starting methadone. Um, and that uh, can take care of the withdrawal piece. And then we can use short-acting opioids on top of that um, to help manage the, the pain component. Um, if, um, if we don't feel comfortable using methadone, we can use short-acting opioids alone to manage the pain, but we have to be mindful of the dosing intervals. If we dose those short-acting opioids um, too infrequently, in between doses, the patient's going to start to withdraw, and then we're going to have this really kind of mixed picture of is it withdrawal, is it pain, what do we do? And so you want to schedule those short-acting medications at an appropriate interval, and I, my preference is to really schedule them rather than have them, uh, you know, as a PRN medication or an as-needed medication. It just makes the interactions uh, much more easy. And then for those patients that are already engaged in opioid agonist treatment with methadone or, uh, or buprenorphine, um, there's a couple more sort of points that we should make. You know, one is that both methadone and buprenorphine can be used for pain, but the dosing for pain is different than the dosing for addiction. And so one misconception that I, that I hear in the hospital is the patient shouldn't be experiencing pain. They're already on methadone, but that doesn't fit with what we know about the pharmacology of these medications. 
Um, so for that patient who's on methadone, we should continue their methadone and we should add in short-acting opioid medications as needed and titrate uh, to their pain and then back off at the, at the appropriate time. For patients that are on buprenorphine, it's a little bit more complicated because buprenorphine binds so tightly to the mu receptor uh, that it blocks, in theory, the effect of other opioid medications. But there's three options that, um, that are out there that we can try. So one is we can continue the buprenorphine and add the short-acting opioids. Um, now, this doesn't theoretically make sense, though there's reports in the literature and there's animal models where this works. And we'd have to expect that we're going to use much higher doses of the short-acting opioids than we otherwise would. The second option is to take the total daily dose of the buprenorphine and divide it three to four times a day. You know, buprenorphine for pain when we use it, that's how we dose it. It's uh, the, the analgesic effect is it's really a six to eight hour effect. And so we can divide the dose three to four times a day. And then the final option is to stop the buprenorphine altogether and just use short acting opioids. But we have to remember it's a long-acting medication, and so in the first 24 to 48 hours, the patient may require much higher doses of short-acting opioids, and then we're going to really have to, to back off as the buprenorphine kind of gets out of their, out of their system. Otherwise, we're going to run the risk of, uh, of overdose. So you were talking a little bit earlier about discharging patients and getting the discharging right and engaging patients in future treatment. How do you best approach discharging patients from hospital? Discharge planning, I think, really starts um, not soon after admission. Um, we have to start thinking about what do we need to do to make sure that discharge plan is, is safe. I, I think that's probably true for, for all patients who come into the, into the hospital. But, you know, in particular with patients with opioid use disorder, some of the relevant things to consider would be you know, have we screened them for things like HIV and viral hepatitis, which is going to be more common, especially in injection uh, drug users? Uh, and have we provided appropriate vaccinations? Oftentimes, these patients are not linked in with, with primary care. Have we discussed harm redu reduction strategies, such as safer injecting practices? Um, one thing that often goes unthought about uh, are, you know, have we talked about storage of their opioid medications at home, particularly if there's children in the house? Um, this might be something that, uh, that patients and providers aren't thinking about at all, but, um, but really safe storage of opioids when there are children in the house is, is essential to talk about. And, um, you know, have we thought about prescribing naloxone for overdose prevention. You know, it's a real opportunity in the hospital to make sure that, the, that our patients are leaving with a prescription for naloxone. Have we talked about and addressed the psychosocial comorbidities that might go along with opioid use disorder, such as homelessness or underlying depression or PTSD? Um, have we thought about linking our patients with primary care providers that can help facilitate that really long-term treatment that's, that's needed? And then I think the most critical pieces, you know, have we, have we addressed the underlying issue, which is often the opioid use disorder, not the abscess that they, they came in with, but have we really addressed that underlying opioid use disorder? Have we talked to patients about the medications that we can use to, to help treat that? Have we thought about connecting them with outpatient addiction uh, providers? 
Uh, and these steps really, they, they take time. And so you don't want to be thinking about that on the day of, of discharge. We want to be thinking about initiating the medication in the hospital if the patient's amenable to that and thinking about who am I going to connect this patient to when they leave so that that treatment can continue. And what's your number one takeaway message for physicians listening to this podcast? I would say the the number one takeaway message is is this. I, you know, I, I think that caring for patients with opioid use disorder is actually incredibly rewarding. Um, and we have good tools available to help us manage this chronic disease. And so when patients with opioid use disorder are, are admitted to the hospital, you know, this is a real opportunity to engage them in a conversation about their opioid use and initiate treatment and connect them to long-term term care. So, you know, I think that's that's the takeaway part. The, that that inpatient visit is a real opportunity for us to to affect the course of this chronic disease. Well, Dr. Donro, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Joseph Donro, Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. To read the review article he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca.